Coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Moderna now approved for 12 to 17-year-olds. An Afghan update. New polling says the liberals are in trouble. And paging Dr. Tam, Dr. Teresa Tam. Why have we had no updates during the federal election? It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Shirtless. You had a shirt on the other day. We thought we were going with a trend. What happened? I forgot. But you remembered your pants. That's a good thing. You ready? Yep. Get I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. This is the last weekend before Labor Day. After that, it's back to school. It's the last blast, kids. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. There you go, the last blast. I used to start getting a tummy ache right about now when I was a kid in the summer. All right. Uh, good afternoon. It is 11. Sorry, it is 1211. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers come back at the station. Keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. Jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Uh, lots of ways to do that. Feel free. You can send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Some uh, information in regard to COVID-19, vaccinations and such. So let's bring you up to date and bring in Dr. Isaac Bogosh, staff physician, general internal medicine and infectious diseases, associate professor, Department of Medicine, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, you too. I'm happy to chat. Uh, good news this morning. Moderna has now been approved for those 12 to 17. What does this mean? Yeah, I mean, there's just more opportunities to get vaccines into those younger cohorts. That's, that's great news. I'm very interested to hear what NACI is going to say. Uh, the approval is a Health Canada approval. Uh, NACI will probably opine on this, I imagine, today or tomorrow as well. Uh, I think it's uh, you know uh, yet another opportunity to get younger cohorts vaccinated, and we need that. We absolutely need that. Oh, you're starting to scare me here, doctor. I mean, uh, we all remember last time when NACI and, and Health Canada got together. Uh, are you worried that there might be conflicting messaging here, as we've seen often in the past when NACI weighs in? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm just curious to hear what they're going to say. Um, in all fairness, there's the message and the content, and then there's how it's delivered. And I yeah. fully agree that the delivery of much of that content left much to be desired for in several instances. And that was that was a significant challenge. We all remember that. Having said that, when we actually look at the content of what they said, it was mostly pretty reasonable. And, and we are abiding by those nasty statements now in terms of who's eligible for vaccines, what vaccines we should be using, et cetera. So, let, again, I, I hope there's no conflict because that just makes everyone's lives uh, challenging and sows confusion. But uh, let's see what they've got to say. Uh, let's cut to the chase here. In your opinion, doctor, there is no reason for vaccine shopping, be, uh, for vaccine shopping here. We've been through this. We've had this debate. We have, and we have been through this. I mean, but also full disclosure, I like, I'm about as pro vaccine as you can get. And, mm-hmm. I've, you know, worked on this task force and really firmly believe in this and have got, you know, received a vaccine myself. 
I also think we have to have honest, informed, open conversations about the benefits of the vaccine, which we clearly know, but also some of the risks of the vaccine. And again, these mRNA vaccines are phenomenal, but there's a low but not 0% risk of that inflammation of the heart. That's myocarditis. We know it's more common in, uh, but, you know, it's not exclusive, but more common in younger cohorts, more common, but not exclusive to men, more common, but not exclusively after the second dose. Again, you can't, you've got to have that conversation. You've got to have that conversation. You have to always talk about the benefits, which we clearly know, the risks, which we, we just chatted about, the alternatives, which stink because there aren't any alternatives. The alternative is don't get a vaccine, which I think is a bad alternative. And the context, you know, what is the situation around you? Is there a lot of COVID? Are you surrounded by people at high risk if they were to get infected? And then, you know, you help inform people to make a decision for themselves. That's the key thing, informed decision making. Fortunately, most people will choose to get a vaccine as they have. And I personally believe that's the right move. But the key is enabling people to make an informed decision for themselves. Let's talk about the numbers. Um, uh, obviously, ICU and hospital capacity is what we should really be concerned about. The numbers dip, uh, going up again today. Um, obviously, the majority of those in the unvaccinated. When we hear of people who are uh, uh, getting this disease, this virus, after being fully vaccinated, uh, obviously we've heard they're they're not necessarily getting sick. But could these just be patients who, for example, they were at a gathering and someone there tested positive? So then everybody, you know, goes gets tested, blah blah blah. And of course, we find people that are testing positive but are asymptomatic. So would these numbers be uh, those who have tested positive and have been fully vaccinated are just that they tested positive. There could be asymptomatic, show no symptoms, uh, you know, not even getting to to the point of being sick. Home run. That's exactly it. All those all those numbers tell you are the positive cases. They don't tell you much about those positive cases. It doesn't tell you that they are sick. No, it doesn't. And we need multiple metrics to really paint a more holistic picture of what's happening in the province. So the number of cases per day, some people say, oh, ignore it. It's useless. No, no, that's not. It's important. We just have to put it in the appropriate context. We also have to look at how many are in hospital, how many are in the ICU, how many have significant symptoms. What is the proportion of vaccinated versus unvaccinated in the hospital, in the ICU and total? So, I mean, the, the, like anything else, nuance and context is important. But I completely agree with your sentiment that, you know, yeah, some people are fully vaccinated. They test positive and, you know, they might feel a little crummy, but they're not going to land in hospital or in the ICU or die. Great. Um, it's important to recognize the even before Delta variant had emerged, like this is not a secret. We knew this would happen. This is from the original clinical trials. Right. Mm-hmm. They were testing for symptomatic illness. They weren't just doing PCR tests on everyone. They were testing symptomatic disease. Right. We have to be able to distinguish between infection, which is the ability to you know, detect the virus in someone from disease, which is having symptoms and sometimes even significant symptoms. So that's an important distinction to make. And, and breakthrough infections are often seen as a terrible failure. This is we just have to, I think. Maybe as a medical and scientific profession, we haven't done a good job explaining this to people. But like the whole point of these vaccines is to, yes, of course, reduce the risk of people getting infected. But we know they're not a bulletproof vest. People are still going to get infected. The main goal is to keep you from getting sick, landing in hospital and dying. If you can convert a potentially lethal infection 
into a minor inconvenience with, with the sniffles, you've, you've already won. That's a, that's, a, that's a success. So that's what the goal of the vaccines are, and that's what they do. So really, a breakthrough case is just somebody who has tested positive who has been fully vaccinated. It has nothing to do with how sick they are. Correct. Now, you would want more information because sure, you would yeah. want, if, you know, if, if there was, I'm not saying this is happening, but if we were starting to see a disproportionate or a growing number of breakthrough cases land in hospital, hey, we got ourselves a problem. But yeah. here's what's interesting. We're not. We're not seeing that. We're not seeing that from, um, you know, many jurisdictions. We're seeing vaccine effectiveness really hold strong at about the 90-ish percent mark, which is great. Will some people need a booster shot with time? Absolutely. We'll probably give boosters to immunocompromised people, uh, elderly people, for example, in long-term care settings, and maybe even have cutoffs for older populations that may benefit from a booster. But if you look at the United States now, they're talking about giving boosters to everybody at the six-month mark or eight-month mark. I don't know. I don't think there's really good data to support something like that right now. You talked about hospital and ICU capacity. We remember what it was like during the height of this pandemic. What is it now across uh, Ontario? What is like? What, what is hospital capacity like now? We have good hospital capacity and ICU capacity now. We do. But the problem is, sorry, if you hear noise in the background, I am in the hospital. They're making a no, go ahead. overhead. But so we do have relatively decent uh, hospital and ICU capacity right now in the province. We do. What's a little bit unnerving is, we are seeing a rise in cases, and of course, we are seeing a rise in um, ICU admissions to COVID-19. Now, it's still pretty low. We still have a lot of wiggle room. But if those numbers continue to rise, are we going to get back to where we were before? Remember, Ontario and Canada in general doesn't have very significant per capita ICU capacity when we compare ourselves to other you know, other comparable countries. We don't. We actually have very limited ICU capacity per capita. We had to shut down the entire province of Ontario when about 550 people were admitted to the ICU with a COVID-19-related illness, right? We had stay-at-home orders. All these scheduled surgeries were canceled. We were admitting adults into pediatric ICUs. We got up to about 910, 920 people in the ICUs, but, like, we had to shut her down at just over 500. That's not very many people to shut down an entire province. So like we, we really need to work on capacity. And also we need to work on, obviously that's, that's not an excuse to say let it rip and just build capacity. It's let's keep this virus at bay while more and more get vaccinated um, uh, and, and take steps to really keep transmission of this virus at bay. So we you know protect ourselves, protect our communities and, and don't overwhelm our healthcare system again. Uh, we remember, especially during the first few waves of this pandemic, uh, there were news conferences and, and such from political leaders, from health, uh, NASI, such, what have you. Uh, many are asking now why we're not having those federal um, uh, 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 press conferences now. Where is Dr. Tam? Has this been um, shut down because there's a federal election? I have no idea. I'd like to know as well. Listen, I think more information and high quality information is good. Uh, I'm all for uh, transparency. <laughs> I'm, I, you know, we can discuss the quality of information in some press conferences at federal or provincial or municipal levels, but I'd rather have that information than not. Uh, and the pandemic isn't over. I mean, we're seeing cases. We're in a fourth wave. It's, we're, you know, cases are rising. 
and are continuing to rise. It would be very helpful to have those updates from federal, provincial, and municipal leadership. All right, lots of chatter about the vaccine passport. Uh, I'm fully vaccinated. I encourage everybody to get fully vaccinated. Uh, my issue, and you can tell me if I'm off base here, doctor, with the vaccine passport is, uh, you know, I- I've got into my doctor's office. I've got into my mother's long-term care home with showing what I already have on my smartphone. Uh, you know, when you talk about transparent information, are-, are we putting too much emphasis on this passport in the sense that, it's really a duplication of what we have now. If we can increase the security, I, I, I certainly understand that. But it, it seems as if people are saying that this will help get more people vaccinated. Um, you know, saying you can't do anything without this passport. Well, you can't do anything with what we have already. We're already seeing mandatory things and such, and we don't even have a passport. So are, are we are we barking up the wrong tree here? And if there is a passport, should it not be like federal and then attached to your health system? system and, and passport and such travel. Oh my God, so much to unpack. So number one, yes, I think if you are going to have a, you, you, it's, it's ideal to have centralized sta- standardization, right? If all Canadians had documentation that's the same, that's secure, that would be ideal. A, it would help us internationally, right? We will, sh- there's a one size fits all Canada method that is, that, that adheres to global standards. So if you choose to be vaccinated, uh, you can have access and cross an international border. The second point is, of course, because various provinces are introducing vaccine certificate systems, uh, you know, BC, Quebec, maybe Manitoba. You know, if, what if I'm from, I don't know, Saskatchewan and I want to go to British Columbia? Will I be still allowed to do what, uh, what others have, even if I, if I've received the vaccine? And a national standard for a vaccine certification would be ideal. The third thing is, let's not like, I don't like this perception that, you know, if we all have, if we, we just need these vaccine certificates because that's going to end the pandemic or that's going to yeah. make everything better. No, it's not. It's not. It makes indoor environments safer, but it's not some hermetically sealed indoor environment. It, it certainly makes them safer. You can't ignore that. But like vaccinated, we just talked about it. Vaccinated people could still get this infection. It's just less common. Vaccinated people can still transmit this infection. It's just less common. So it does create a safer indoor place. However, it's not the be-all, end-all. It's not like you can just start cramming, you know, 30,000 people in a stadium without masks or good ventilation. Like, you can't. You expect nothing bad to happen. (laughs) You still are going to have cases. So I think we have to really have realistic conversations about what a vaccine certificate program would do and what it wouldn't do. I I think it really would help create safer indoor spaces and keep businesses open if there are a lot of... um, you know, cases and, 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 you know, healthcare systems are getting stretched. I think it would certainly help, but it's not a panacea. It's not like, it's not going to solve all our problems. It's, it's one of multiple measures that can be taken to keep the virus at bay, to keep people and communities safe. Uh, obviously, there's an election on, and I'm, in a, you know, as a doctor, that's the last thing you want to talk about. But obviously, uh, the prime minister has announced today that it will support provinces uh, monetarily who want to create their own vaccine passport system. He'll he'll pay for it or help pay for it. Uh, should he be focusing on that or creating a federal one of his own so we don't need all of these provincial systems? Uh, if, I mean, a, a federal one would be better. I wonder if this is just, I'm just thinking out loud here, but I wonder if this is, God, what a task to do this at a national level. We'll let the provinces do it and they can, <laughs> they can do it on their own and we'll just put the bill and, and you sort of, 
punt the work to someone else. Maybe that's that. I truly don't know. Regardless, as long as there's standardization across the country, we're doing something right. So as long as there's Canadian standards, and when you're from Alberta and you're going over to Quebec, they will totally see what you have and accept it, and there won't be any issues. That's that's the key point. It's ideal if we all are singing from the same songbook here. So um, what can we learn from the COVID? The last question here, then I'll let you go. What can we learn from the COVID app that was launched uh, earlier on that didn't really have a lot of uptake? Yeah, well... Oh man, I wish we had a lot more time. Like the COVID go ahead, I'll give it app. to you. You you go away. Keep going. Keep going. Keep chatting. <laughs> like the COVID alert app, there's a reason we had a COVID alert app and not a COVID, uh, you know, contact tracing app, right? We the technology exists. Like we could easily have a COVID contact tracing app, but we just had a COVID alert app. The, the technology exists. We can. You can download stuff on your phone. You can track human mobility. I can tell you where you've been and how long you've been there. Like that's, but we didn't do that because no one would, no one would use it yeah. because this is just our values as Canadians. We value privacy and security. Whereas those apps are certainly available in other parts of the world that, you know, I'm not saying they don't value privacy and security, but perhaps, and I'm, might be saying this the wrong way. I mean, nothing but love and respect, but perhaps there was more of a focus on public health on that tug of war between public health and public safety versus individual rights and privacy. Um, so we had a COVID alert app. Did it work? Well, it was free. Some people used it. Not a lot of people did. There were a handful of anecdotal cases where this did work, but like, did it have tremendous impact in Canada? No. Could it have tremendous impact in Canada if everyone downloaded it? Sure. I downloaded it. I checked it periodically. I was a little shocked because, like, I work on a COVID ward in the hospital. Like, everybody <laughs> I saw had COVID and might never being positive. So I'm oh a, little, my. a little perplexed by that, but I don't know. All right. Advice for uh, those of us parents. Uh, uh, the week before school starts, it's the last sort of blast before Labor Day. Advice for us as we get ready for September. Number one, if you're not yet vaccinated, what are you doing? Go and get the vaccine. Number two, if your child is eligible for vaccination and they're going to be going back to school, what are you doing? Go out and get the vaccine. Number three, look at the school. Look at, have a chat with your school or the school board. And, and like, we, we know what the provincial protocols are. We know what the different school, some different school boards have a, taken additional measures on top of that. But the rubber hits the road at the level of the school. Have a chat with your school. Discuss what's it going to look like. What are the cohorts going to look like? What is it like to go in and out of the school? What are the class sizes? How's the ventilation been upgraded? What are the masks that are you know being used? How's the classroom organized? Like these are all important questions that I think parents would want to know uh, and, and might alleviate some concerns or might actually raise some concerns depending on the answers you hear. But I think it's that, that that's important information between now and starting school. Dr. Isaac Bogosh, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking this and uh, bringing this uh, very uh, complicated disease and down to street level where we can understand. Uh, be well and uh, good luck moving forward. Have a great weekend. You too. Looking forward to chatting later. All right. Uh, uh, we have certainly seen what has been happening in Afghanistan. 
uh, and uh, the Taliban's return to power. Canada has flown its final evacu- uh, evacuation flight out of the Kabul airport. Uh, U.S. sticking to its deadline. Uh, President Biden saying he's going to seek revenge for all of this. Uh, to give us an update and uh, where we go from here, let's bring in Stephen Sademan, uh, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University, and Director of the Canadian Defence and Security Network, co-host of the Battle uh, Rhythm Podcast. And uh, Stephen is with us now. Stephen, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Uh, thanks, Scott. How you doing? Good, thank you. Uh, hearing reports now that uh, of the uh, attack on the airport yesterday, uh, that there was only one blast as opposed to two. Your thoughts on the new news that is uh, starting to make it to our shores? Sure. Uh, I don't know why this country music playing in the background. Oh, that's much better. Thank you. Uh, I think that what it shows is that it's far easier to destroy than to create. So we, the reports had... So many C-17s and C-130s from the United States and plus other planes from other countries doing so much work to get people out of there. And all it took was one one uh, guy with a suicide pack to do so much damage. I mean, it's horrendous how many people were killed and harmed in, in, in that one attack. And it, it just shows the larger dynamics that it's so much easier to hurt than it is to, to create. We had heard that uh, the Taliban, although uh, the U.S. forces had control, have control of the airport outside the airport. Obviously, it's the Taliban who's deciding who gets to the next stage, I guess, and that they were screening everybody. How did this person get through, do you think? Uh, if you've seen the pictures, the numbers of people there, uh, a, a really difficult situation. The Taliban probably didn't want this to happen because it makes them look bad. So this person, you know, this is the Afghanistan variant or or franchise of ISIS, and they're trying to hurt the Taliban as much as they're trying to hurt uh, the United States and, and the West. So um, this person got passed because it's a chaotic situation there, and and the Taliban probably are not very good at crowd control or at uh, trying to create. Um, uh, barriers or checkpoints for uh, this kind of situation because they, they that, that's not the kind of organization they are. They're the ones usually trying to get through barriers, and that's a different skill set. Uh, Stephen, obviously this displays the instability in the region. Many think that the Taliban are in control, but obviously as these forces pull out, uh, obviously, or, or maybe maybe not, are we going to see more of this fragmentation? Are we going to see some sort of central control, or will it be a, a free-for-all? Well, the thing is, is that what the Taliban did over the past several months is they didn't gain control of Afghanistan. They denied control of Afghanistan to the what was the government. And so it will be uh, hard for them to uh, control the entire country. Uh, I think that the past suggests that the Taliban will be able to get their act together and impose some sense of order. That's what they do best. But that doesn't mean that they'll own the entire country, and it doesn't mean that they will be able to eliminate uh, ISIS-K, as this this variant of of ISIS is known. Um, It may be that uh, the Taliban will have to fight their own counterinsurgency effort, and that's not easy, as we've demonstrated. So not necessarily uh, complete Taliban control uh, in the future. There will be a fight within for control of that power. Is that accurate? Well, I would say, I, it's hard to say. It's really hard to speculate right now what will happen. But 
I think the best guess is that the Taliban will have control over Kabul and will have control over much of the country, but that there will be spots of opposition around and that they'll be, they'll be facing their own terrorist uh, uh, opposition, that ISIS will continue to attack them, just like they continue to attack uh, other governments. We don't say that the governments of Germany or France or, or the United States or wherever else don't exist because they, they occasionally face individuals who are inspired by ISIS. Uh, so the Taliban will probably be, you know, the government of Afghanistan. But we have to remember that back 20 years ago, their idea of government was pretty minimal. It wasn't about economic development. It wasn't about social development. It wasn't about environmentalism. It wasn't about anything else besides controlling the territory and imposing theocracy. So that's their priorities then, and that's probably what will be their priorities in the future. After this uh, attack yesterday, U.S. Biden, uh, U.S. President Biden, uh, vowing revenge. What can he do at this point, um, and, and and moving forward? How does this change what their plan is? Well, I think the plan was always to try to see if the United States could continue to have some decent intelligence on what was going on in Afghanistan, so that way, if they found terrorist groups, that they could then target them. Uh, they still have the ability to intercept signals they still have presumably some some assets in country in terms of individuals who are willing to help the united states um what was striking about this attack was we were alerted to it that the reports had come out and you saw the canadian government tell the folks that are were trying to get on canadian uh planes that that there was a higher level of threat and that people should should avoid that area and obviously, not everybody listened, or not, not everybody heard that. Uh, the you know very desperate situation for people trying to get out of the country. But th- that the fact that that we have warning about this is is indicative that the United States still has some capabilities, and, and its friends still have some capabilities to know what is going on to some degree. And that will mean that the United States, with its various you know air assets, drones, fighter bombers, missiles, can still hit targets when they find a target. Uh, is this why, uh, for the reasons you s- just said, we were warned about this, that we, why we saw the last Canadian flight the other day come out, that was it? Well, the thing is, is that the United States was starting to pull its own troops back. You know, there were reports of multiple explosions yesterday, and some of those were, you know, most of those were not by outsiders or adversaries, but it was by the United States blowing up military equipment because they're getting ready to leave. Right. And so they probably have some sense of, who should go first and who should go last? And they told the Canadians, we can't help you for much longer. It's time for you to go, so that way we can clear space for other people to go. Uh, so it may be that the Germans and the, the French and the British might have had an extra few hours uh, to get people out, uh, but everybody's on their way out, and that's just the basic reality that, that we have to work backwards from the August 31st deadline. What happens to those with Canadian passports that are still there? Your guess is as good as mine. We don't know what the Taliban is going to be doing to them, and we don't know what the Taliban will do in the future in terms of opening up the airport or other ways to get out of the country. Uh, Many said that we didn't act quick enough, get people out fast enough. Uh, Those on the ground that are there that we are desperately trying to get out, could they have gotten out earlier on their own? That probably sounds like a stupid question, but I'm asking it. Yeah, well, we had seven years. You know, we, we left in 2014, uh, and actually, we've seen reports today that there are people who, you know, once our troops left Kandahar in 2011, that they were looking to get out. Yeah. And we had an immigration refugee agency 
that was more concerned with box checking, you know, making sure everyone right. had every possible form. And, you know, and to expect refugees or individuals from Afghanistan to have the kind of access to the documents and to the web and all the rest of it was, was just problematic. And, and I think that it's very clear that we failed these people not this past month, but over the past 10 years, and we could have gotten more of them out. Now, maybe some of them didn't want to go leave until more recently when things started to break down. But we should have had all that paperwork or, you know, reduced in terms of the demands made on people. We should have had uh, people being pulled out before this. I mean, the real date that that should drive this stuff was the Doha agreement last year with Donald Trump, basically ending the American mission sometime in 2021. Uh, And that should have sent a signal to to global affairs, to the Immigration uh, Refugee Service, to the government, to make this a priority and to make it easier for people to do the paperwork and to and to start getting them out of the country because once once Trump signed that agreement with the Taliban, it was only a matter of time and and, and the deadline was going to be sometime in 2021. So this was pretty much a logistical backlog. This we just couldn't process them fast enough. We didn't we didn't start early enough. I think that's a logistical thing, but it hinges on politics. The government didn't make this a priority, and the government yeah. didn't change the, the numbers of how many people we were going to bring in. But it, there should have been a group, political pressure from on the high, uh, from the cabinet to their agencies, to make this easier. Uh, the prime minister says even though uh, we're out or, or uh, military efforts are out, we're still helping. What, what is Canada doing now? Well, Canada has, you know, there's plenty of Afghans who made it out before now, uh, through, through, you know, not on our planes, but in other ways. And so the question is, you know, we got them applying for refugee status from, you know, whether they're in Iran or, or uh, Pakistan, Uzbekistan, or maybe they have made it further out into Europe or elsewhere. Uh, we can let those folks into the country. We can help them get here and then take care of them. And then there's the taking care of the people who did get out. So those are the things we can do. And we can also provide humanitarian aid. Not ourselves directly, but through international organizations like the WHO and like the United Nations uh, Refugee Agency and get them to help uh, either shift money into and support people in Afghanistan or into the refugee camps that are going to be refilling on the Pakistan border. Um, where do you see, considering what we saw yesterday at the airport and, and the suicide bombing, again, now confirmed as being one, uh, not two, but, but obviously we're seeing, uh, you know, competing forces for control and such. Once August 31st see, uh, passes, considering what we saw yesterday, does that change your opinion moving forward of what we'll see in Afghanistan after August 31? I think yesterday's events made it clear that that the Taliban are going to have their own challenges. Uh, I still don't know what their stances are going to be towards their own people. I don't know if this is going to push them to be more repressive than they would otherwise be, which is kind of hard to imagine. Um, you know, things are still in flux, and we really don't know how they're going to govern until you know months down the road, or maybe a year or two down the road, um, when they reveal who they really are. Is there any way we can use some sort of special force, what have you, to try to help the rest that are in Afghanistan get out? There are limits to what we can do. Um, It would require uh, a great risk, uh, and um, we will not have bases in Afghanistan to, to launch these efforts at, and we don't really have, I think, the capability to to launch 
uh, efforts from na- nearby countries on our own. Uh, I, I, I think looking at special operations folks as, ha- as being miracle workers, you know, they have, they have uh, amazing capabilities, but there's only so much they can do. They can fly a helicopter into a country, drop some guys off to, to capture or kill somebody. That's another thing entirely to go wandering around the country trying to pick up people and, 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 and ferry them out of the country. I, there may be some stuff like that going on. I have no idea. Uh, and uh, and there will be some countries that may try to do some of this stuff, but it, it's, it's just very, very difficult. And, it, and, it, and it's just very, very hard and very, very risky. Will the rest of the world kind of pretty much watch Afghanistan implode for the next couple of years until they, until they become a threat? Uh, I think what we've learned is that it's very hard to influence events in Afghanistan. Um, and so what are we going to do when the Taliban is in power? We will have limited means to influence them. And so, yes, we're just going to have to watch them and maybe try to provide some carrots and some sticks. But, you know, if they don't want to be engaged in the world, there's not much we can do about it. And if they do want to be engaged in the world, then maybe they'll moderate their policies. But I, I'm not all that optimistic. Stephen Sadman with us, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University. Stephen, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. All right. Thank you very much, Scott. Here's the commentary you've been waiting for. Ryerson University in Toronto is changing its name after its Board of Governors recommended doing so when a task force made 22 recommendations, including removing any reference to Egerton Ryerson, the institution's namesake. The honor was initially given to Ryerson in recognition of the educator's contribution to the Canadian school system, being an advocate for creating school boards, consistency in textbooks, and making education free. He was a contributing architect to the Canadian system, including the Indigenous residential school system that has finally got the attention of Canadians. Modern society will determine the future of statues, monuments, and institutions that bear the names of those that are now thought of differently by the citizenry. Whether it's a swastika, a U.S. Confederate flag, or a statue of John A. Macdonald, we have to all understand why victims feel the way they do. And the first step is listening to their stories. In the meantime, the debate will continue as what to do with the John A. McDonald's, the Ryersons, the Dundasses, or even the Pierre Trudeau's, or any leader in the last 154 years that is now seen as being on the wrong side of history. I'm Scott Thompson. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. On that note, and also indigenous issues in this election, considering where we were uh, with the discussion in regard to the residential schools and uh, the mass graves that are being identified underneath those uh, former residential schools, uh, are you surprised we aren't hearing more of this uh, in the current election? Let's bring in Dr. Liam Midzane Gobin, Assistant Professor of Political Science, Brock University, whose research focuses on uh, uh, production and continually remaking of uh, settler colonial and indigenous governance practices. Uh, Liam, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on. Hope you're doing well, too. Thanks so much. Uh, your thoughts on the renaming of Ryerson University? Um, I think I'll join the chorus of people who are saying this is both wonderful to see and also an incredible signal of the strength of uh, the, especially the students who are organizing, the students and staff and faculty organizing at the university itself. Um, I was actually just reading the the report of the the task force today, and it's a pretty incredible document. And uh, to see the board really take up the recommendations in the way that they did uh, gives a lot of people 
hope, I think, and also alleviates a lot of the a lot of the pain that uh, that name can bring to to so many. Uh, twenty. Obviously, we focus on statues and naming and such, but talk about the twenty-two other recommendations. Is there anything uh, there that is worth uh, mentioning at this point that is 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 also quite significant? Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's maybe not that much different necessarily, but one of the recommendations was changing the name, and and the board uh, accepted that. Um, a series of the others actually, you know, have to do with commemoration and putting in place a commemoration policy. Um, but also putting in place a lot of other structures in order to actually do the work of remembering. Um, one of the things that we oftentimes hear about in the statue discourse um, and the kind of uh, the naming discourse is that, well, we can't erase history. And one of the things that the task force actually found when they went in is that we're not doing, and, and even at formerly Ryerson X University um, named to be determined, they've done a really poor job of actually, you know, understanding the history of Egerton Ryerson. And so what they actually have in there are uh, calls for new policies around commemoration, who gets commemorated, when and how, and um, also putting in place structures to be able to actually better research and, and have the money and the supports for research into Ryerson and, and his own legacy as well, as well as many others. And so I think that that is a really important part that uh, really you know, hasn't gotten nearly as much attention as the name itself has. Um, but two other things really quickly, and they're, they're kind of connected. One is that so much of it is uh, understood and so much of that work has been undertaken to provide more equity for Indigenous students, yes, but um, especially Black students and staff and faculty. And so um, there's been a lot of work by both communities working together on that. And then the second point there is that one of the really important things I think in there are recommendations around putting in place um, long-term and stable, secure funding for uh, undergraduate, graduate students, as well as postdoctoral fellows, um, both Indigenous and Black. And I think that that will do a lot of the work that this country needs to do in terms of really building pipelines for uh, students to be able to be educated uh, in these institutions and really make them a positive force for the world. Uh, many, some are saying canceling history, erasing history is the term you used. Uh, are we doing that or adding the real story to it? I, I think it's adding the real story. Like I was saying, um, one of the things that the task force actually found was that we've done a really, really poor job of actually understanding and documenting and researching our history um, and that there's so much more that needs to be done and actually we'll have a much better understanding of that history and being able to put it into context as these recommendations get implemented. And so I think um, that's one thing that we really do need to be a bit more attentive to, especially as settlers is, you know, we don't actually know uh, a lot of what we say we know. And so this, this is actually one way for us to, to do more of that historical work. Can we be now surprised that there isn't a lot of information on this, considering for the last 150 years uh, it, they've been trying to erase it? So if they're trying to remove the, quote, Indian from the child, why would they have any history of it? I, I mean, can we be surprised? I, I, I think that's, that's probably right. Um, so much of what the statute discourse or the kind of um, – canceling of historical figures kind of gets wrapped up in uh, is this uh, idea and uh, sorry what it what it misses is this idea that really what we're doing is commemorating and celebrating certain figures and so we're going to put forward um, specific understandings of these figures you know ways of, of knowing who they are and what they've done and how great they are um, that 
build up that narrative. And so, uh, no, we can't really say at this point that we know who these historical figures are, at least not in, in the public in that way. And so um, by really going through this and, and doing the work to actually document what these people did and what these oftentimes men did, um, that actually adds to our understanding of that history. And uh, it actually does give us that understanding that we claim to have now. Uh, I think this personally, this all comes around to just not understanding how painful these symbol R's, uh, these symbols are to certain segments of the population. For example, uh, whether it's a swastika, whether it's a Confederate flag, whether it's a statue of John A. McDonald, are we are we getting to that point where we're understanding, yeah, I know what my, what my point is, but I'm not understanding how painful it is to these others. Are we, are we bridging that gap? I think we're getting there, and we're finally starting to make decisions with those people's uh, interests and pain at the center of them. Right? Um, so much of what motivated uh, the, the work of the task force was the, the trauma and the pain experienced by those at X university. And so by really taking that seriously and by really working from an understanding that this isn't what we want to continue to perpetuate, that is how these recommendations came about. And that was ultimately what guided, I assume, the, the decision of the board um, yesterday to, to, to change the name. And so I think you're absolutely right. We're finally starting to get there. We're finally starting to really take, you know, this pain and this trauma and this intergenerational trauma seriously. And I think that's a wonderful thing. I think that it does give us, as I said, a, a better understanding of history. It does offer us so much. And um, it also takes away a lot of the, the pain that we've just kind of accepted for others, um, and especially for Indigenous and Black folk in the country. And yeah, Is I think it- it's really important that we move past that. Is it University X now until a new name is found? I'm actually, uh, I'm not entirely sure. I know many, many um, faculty and staff and students have been calling it X University. And my guess is that that's what they will continue to be doing. Um, the, the intent seems to be to have a, a new name in place for uh, September 2022. So there will be a consultation process that, that is undertaken there. Uh, I assume similar to the work of the task force where they interviewed and connected with thousands of, of students and, and staff and faculty. Um, and so I think they'll they'll undertake that process. And um, I think continuing on with X University is, is most likely right now. Any idea what a new name should be? What criteria where we should draw from? Should it be an indigenous leader? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. It, it, it may very well be, but what the actual task force has called for um, is for the university to adopt certain principles of commemoration. And so I think that those principles of commemoration are really going to guide the choice of that name. Um, without offering uh, a name itself, the principles that the task force wants to see adopted are transparency, respectful collaboration, purposeful representation, truth and reconciliation, and humility and continuous learning. And so Guided by those principles, I think that whomever is tasked with undertaking this consultation work um, is going to need to come with a name that represents uh, the best of all of those principles. And and I expect they will be able to because they've done a a pretty great job up to this point. Uh, Interesting note from a listener who one of the early graduates of, of Ryerson when Bill Davis was the education minister, he said he received his degree from Bill Davis on graduation. What about that name? 
Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I will be very honest and say that I'm actually was was born in in BC, and my kind of deep understanding of Ontario's uh, history of politics is not great. Um, that might be the sort of kind of former politician name that uh, that they decide to go with, but um, we'll we'll have to kind of see what that committee comes up with following those principles. Are you surprised we are not hearing more of this uh, at this point into this federal election? Since it was such, these, you know, it was all we were talking about other than COVID uh, a few weeks ago once we heard the story out of Kamloops. Are you surprised it's not chatted about more on the election trail? Yeah, actually, uh, I think the way I've described it with friends is that I've gotten a bit of whiplash um, because we just went from the entire country um, you know, pouring out their hearts and being so concerned and talking about um, how so many people, you know, felt like every grave was one of their own children. And we've had mostly silence from um, from media, certainly, but also most of the federal leaders up to this point. I think uh, Jagmeet Singh is the only one that has gone to a, a First Nation. He was at Kawasas, um, uh last week, I believe, and, and was asked about this. But it, it's been it's been striking to go from that being the kind of focal point of the summer alongside COVID to uh, almost crickets, um, or I guess cicadas this year, uh, the opposite of cicadas <laughs> this year um, in the in the federal election. Uh, it, it, I have been chatting with many Indigenous leaders, uh, and even way back when, uh, I remember asking them if they thought this would... Uh, the discovery of these mass graves underneath these residential schools, if it would change the conversation. And he feared that in air, both he and she many times, many of these indigenous leaders feared that uh, as time went on, this would become less of an issue. Is that's what, is that what's happening here? I, I would be concerned that it is. Uh, I think that uh, as I've been reminded by, by friends a couple of times, um, there's oftentimes quite a bit of outpouring and support for reconciliation and the work associated with that um, at, at, the, at the time at which it becomes a news story. We saw that in 2015 with the release of the TRC report, again in 2019 with the release of the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls report. And uh, there has been very little follow-up on, on either of those from the federal government and very little uh, holding of their feet to the fire by, by many in the country. And so... Um, I, I really hope that, you know, this is something that the federal leaders, I mean, these, these campaigns have been scripted for quite a while. And so I, I do hope that they have scripted something uh, for later on in the campaign. Uh, and, I, and I hope that, you know, yourself and, and this, this segment and many others can kind of help bring some of that to light. You know, Tanya Talaga has a really wonderful op-ed in, in the Global Mail um, about the silence of, of Indigenous issues on the campaign trail. But yeah, it's, it's been shocking. It's been surprising. And I really, really hope that it doesn't get lost. We were all under the understanding that the search for these uh, missing children would continue. Uh, we haven't heard much about it. Is there any chance of a major, another major story breaking before this campaign ends? It's always possible. Um, this work takes a long time and takes a lot of effort. Yeah. Um, and so while, while it's possible, it may also come right after the election, it, then we'll probably be getting announcements over the next couple of years of, of these kinds of findings, um, especially since I'll note that every one of the major parties has committed to funding properly, finally, uh, yeah. the actual searches themselves and not kind of have that be on the backs of community members to, to fund them. Uh, and so, you know, that's, that's welcome. And that's only going to mean that we see more and more of this, but it's totally possible we have something in the next 
20 or so days. Um, but uh, also, I'm not sure because this is a this is a long term process and it's going to take a while. Uh, obviously, we've seen what's happened with Ryerson University uh, in Hamilton, the statue of John A. McDonald down, uh, you know, and this has happened in other areas uh, as well. Uh, lots of chatter about Dundas, uh, obviously a very long street here, uh, even a town outside of Hamilton, a hamlet uh, called Dundas. Uh, and, I was just obviously with, yesterday, actually. And, well, there you go. Beautiful. Uh, and obviously with Ryerson, uh, where does this stop? Does it keep going? Do we, you know, I'm thinking in, in particular with, uh, you know, Trudeau Airport in Quebec, named after uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, who, of course, signed uh, up for the last series of residential schools uh, in the country. Uh, if we're if we're dealing with Johnny McDonald this way, does it go all the way down the line? Where do you draw that line? It might. I don't know that it necessarily will, and I certainly wouldn't put myself in a position to, to know where that line gets drawn. I think, as we had kind of talked about before, so much of this has been motivated by and pushed for by people who really want to make sure that that burden isn't on Indigenous folks uh, and, and Black folks as well to carry um, the burden of those names across the country. And so we'll, we'll see. There's um, the move in Hamilton to change the name of Egerton Ryerson um, Middle School, I believe. And so, yep. um, you know, like where I, I, I can't say where kind of that movement will end or, or when it might end. But uh, I do think that statues and uh, naming and whatnot aside, we're certainly nowhere near the end of movements like Land Back and the movements to really um, implement Indigenous self-determination across that, this country. And that is what we're continuing to see. The, the tiny house warriors out in British Columbia are certainly at it today. And there's a movement, I think, just kind of as we speak, um, outside of uh, one of the offices in downtown Toronto. And so actions like this are going to continue, whether it be focused on names and individuals um, or whether or not it's focused on actual Indigenous self-determination, making sure that these nations can can govern and, and determine for themselves uh, how they want to be governed. And so that's certainly not something that's going to go away. And it seems to be at this point, Liam, that it's society that's deciding what's going on here rather than uh, politicians, which is probably a good thing. Are we using <laughs> symbols as a scapegoat? In other words, we do this down, we're fine, and yet we're not talking about those precious bodies underneath the, the residential schools across the country. Should we, you know, we're changing names, we're not focusing on those kids, or is one a step to the other? I worry that it becomes a scapegoat. I worry that it becomes uh, the kind of, not that it is easy or not that it hasn't taken effort, but the sort of low-hanging fruit to change a name rather than change a system and a structure. Um, exactly. I don't, I, don't, I don't think that that's going to be possible, though. Um, I think that as we start seeing some of these names come down, as we start seeing really change across the country in, uh, you know, specifically to allow for and, and build those spaces of Indigenous self-determination, um, as we start seeing that pick up steam, that's only going to get more and more powerful. And so as uh, a lot of people have kind of assumed over, over the years that, you know, Indigenous activism might have been finished or that, you know, there wasn't any appetite for it among settlers. Um, but we've seen time and time again that Indigenous folks and, and Black folks across the country are going to continue pushing for this. And so um, I, I take a lot of heart from from them, really, from from them being able to continue pushing this forward in the face of, of sometimes large scale indifference. And so 
Uh, I don't think this is that we're going to see this as the end, um, but I think that there are going to be different conversations that we have to have. Dr. Liam Midzane Gobin with us, Assistant Professor, Political Science, Brock University, talking about Indigenous issues that seem to captivate us prior to the election but have lost steam when it comes to the campaign itself. Why is that? Uh, Liam, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We remembered, uh, I think it was halfway through this campaign, between the first and second waves uh, campaign, uh, the global pandemic, between the first and the second wave, uh, there was a sort of a window there. The popularity of the prime minister was extremely high. They were talking about uh, having an election, throne speech, whatever, uh, what have you. And then, of course, that window closed very, very quickly with the arrival of the second wave. Uh, now, and it was odd because back then it was who was going to trigger the election. It was as if they were throwing things up against the wall, hoping the opposition would trigger the election. Uh, you know, the election was wanted, but nobody wanted to trigger it, uh, certainly in the opposition. So it kind of died. And then now, uh, with, uh, of course, uh, the House not sitting, the Prime Minister has decided to call an election, uh, thinking the iron was hot and now's the time to do this. But uh, what has happened? And since then is uh, the polling numbers have showed that, uh, in fact, his popularity is, uh, well, as the headline in the Global News article said, cratering. Uh, and uh, NDP leader uh, Jagmeet Singh is gaining ground. Let's bring in Sean Simpson, vice president of Ipsos, and is with us now. Sean, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, very well. Thank you. Are you surprised uh, Jagmeet Singh is the uh, most likable leader? I mean, I, I, this was a trend we were seeing, was it not? Well, what we've noticed in our polling uh, since, uh, well, over a decade is that NDP leaders since Jack Layton consistently poll ahead of their parties in terms of uh, likability, favorability, and, and uh, even who would make the best prime minister. So it's, it's not surprising to me. Jagmeet Singh is second time out in the federal campaign, com- comes out swinging, and, and people like him. He's the most liked leader at, at 45%. And moreover, he's the only leader with a net positive favorability, meaning more people like him than dislike him. Why can't this seem to translate into votes? Uh, we even remember last election, both the Greens and the NDP were polling quite high, and then the NDP ended up losing seats. So how do they translate the popularity for their leader into success uh, in the voting booth? Well, I think it's because not everybody votes based on the leader, right? Uh, some people vote based on their local candidate. Some people vote based on the uh, the issues. Other people are voting strategically, uh, not based on who they like the best, but maybe who has the best shot of winning or best shot at starting another policy. So there are there are many factors at play, which I think um, act as a bit of an anchor on the uh, on the NDP, despite the relative uh, popularity of its leader. Uh, and uh, obviously, second time around for Jugmeet Singh, uh, that seems to be working in his favor. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and uh, uh, Blanchet, actually in Quebec, uh, Blanchet's approval ratings are, are quite good. 39% favorable, 39% unfavorable, but at least it's, it's a net neutral where everybody else is, is in the negatives. The new leaders are, are struggling a, a little bit more. Um, but for different reasons, of course. Uh, Aaron O'Toole, one in four Canadians, said they don't know enough about him to to say whether it's either favorable or not. Uh, in the early weeks of the camp campaign, things seem to be uh, maybe tilting in his favor. So I'm I'm interested to see where that goes. Annabelle Paul, the leader of the Green Party, she's new to the party. There's been a lot of internal strife. 
Uh, 42% of Canadians say they don't know enough about her to, to know one way or the other. But among those that do have an opinion, it's three to one unfavorable. Uh, and, uh, you know, say what you want about the Green Party, but uh, Elizabeth May was, was fairly well liked, even if, if she didn't necessarily win, uh, win the vote. Justin Trudeau, by comparison, everybody knows who he is. Opinions are, are pretty well baked in. And 53% of Canadians are unfavorable. A majority of Canadians have unfavorable impressions of the prime minister, which puts him tied with Maxime Bernier, which I don't think is a place where you want to be. So what has damaged uh, the prime minister? Uh, why the large drop? Well, I think it's it's not just uh, in the last you know days and, and weeks, but the seeds of this are of course sown years ago. The prime minister came in with with very high expectations. I think people understood that he was maybe more substance in policy. In fact, we did polling at the time that suggested that was was the case. And over the years, you know, there have been various gaffes and misplays, and of course, the last election with the, with the blackface and and uh, you know issues, of course, with Judy Wilson Raybould and and. Dr. Jane Philpott, all of these things sort of pile up. And now recently, the Canadians uh, were definitely not on his side in calling an election. And the prime minister has struggled to uh, articulate the reasons for an election to the point where Canadians believe that it is he and not conservative leader who has a hidden agenda. Of course, the prime minister's agenda isn't hidden. We all know he's looking for a majority government. Uh, What about the gender uh, split here? Uh, It it really seems that gender is playing an issue here. Uh, The Prime Minister self-proclaimed feminist, Mm -hmm. uh, focusing right on, uh, you know, specifically the female vote. How does this break down uh, from gender? Is is that going to be an issue here? You know, you brought up the block earlier, and I was reading that they're pretty much even Stevens split between male and female, which is, I'm guessing, what you would want. Um, But Obviously, it seems that, uh, you know, obviously uh, the prime minister and the liberals going more after the female vote. Talk about the gender split here. Yeah, gender is really important. So, of course, the prime minister, uh, you know, as you said, is the feminist prime minister. Uh, at, but his lead among women is is only four points. He's only sorry, five points higher favorability than than among men. Aaron O'Toole, conversely, uh, higher uh, ratings among men than women. Uh, but the person who actually uh, is able to court the, the female vote uh, the best is Jagmeet Singh uh, and mm. younger people. I mean, if you are a young woman, uh, you, you know, if I was a betting man without knowing anything else about you, my, my bet would be that you're likely to vote uh, NDP in this campaign. That's how strong that 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 uh, that lead is in Quebec. Uh, age is a little bit of a factor, but really what's the, the biggest factor is is is. Sorry, gender, a little bit of a factor. Age is the biggest factor. The older you are, the more likely you are to support the Bloc Québécois. Uh, is it healthy to have a split in gender, or is it better to be down the middle and have a, a, a balance of both? I mean, obviously, this is going to sway from issue to issue, but overall, is it not best to have a representation uh, of both? Yes, this certainly is uh, good to have representation of both. I would say, you know, a small advantage to one way or the other is is okay uh, because it, it helps you kind of communicate with a block of people who might otherwise be be swayed. But if you have a, a a huge lead among one, what that necessarily means is that you're doing poorly among another. This is a big country. You need to form consensus across demographic groups. Interestingly, normally the Tories, the Conservatives, do very well among people age 55 plus. 
they don't really have a lead among that demographic just yet. Uh, because I think a lot of older people who maybe don't know Aaron O'Toole are still trying to make up their minds. So I think that's a that's a, a big wild card in this campaign. Can the Conservatives regain that, that critical block of, of supporters age 55 plus? And the reason that group is so important is because they are the ones that go out and vote time in, time out. Younger people maybe declare their support for the NDP, but then don't show up on election day. Uh, uh, Aaron O'Toole is moving the party, the Conservative Party, to the center. It's even got the attention of reporters. I was watching one of his news conferences this week, and people are saying, "Well, that's not conservative. You're, you're, you know, what are you doing to your base here? Uh, how does that address the swing vote? Uh, it seems that O'Toole has more of a center stance than past Conservative leaders. Well, I'll, I'll say this much: it's convinced Jagmeet Singh. You know, he's come out and said that he would entertain being uh, a, a, a willing participant in in propping up a conservative minority. So, yes, he's moving to the center. Aaron O'Toole is. I think what, you know, what conservative leaders often try to do is how far can I move to the center before alienating my right? Right. You do it too much. And then all of a sudden you have a reform party that that uh, that strikes out and, and kills conservative chances for the next decade or, or more. So Aaron O'Toole is trying to figure out what 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 this is all about. His favorability ratings among his own supporters are lower than Trudeau's supporters of himself and Jagmeet Singh of, him, of himself. So um, it, there's some work there to shore up the base and to motivate them to get out and vote. But nothing motivates supporters like the chance at winning. So now that things are hmm. closer, I think we'll start to see the Tories get rally around their leader a little bit more. And they may even achieve that ballot box bonus that they often get on E-Day. You bring up a great point, Sean, because many were talking at the beginning this is going to be a dull, humdrum election, that people would stay home, there'd be low voter, uh, voter turnout. Do you think the fact that it is such a tight race, as you've reported, that, that it will get more out? Yeah, that's going to help. Uh, when it's a, a fait accompli or when we think that the, that the result is going to be as, as it was prior to the election, uh, then uh, people stay home. They don't think their vote matters as much. They don't see a consequence uh, uh, to, of, of, of not voting. Now that it's very close, uh, the stakes are much higher. And as a result, Canadians, I think, will, uh, will be paying attention more closely, will be more likely to go out and vote. The, the other wild card in this campaign, and boy, I'd hate to be a pollster right now, is, is trying to figure out who's going to turn out and vote, given that we know that many people may not be comfortable going to a ballot box uh, in the pandemic, especially if, mm. if the uh, Delta uh, variant uh, grabs an even stronger hold in, in Canada, let alone Lambda or other, uh, or other variants as well. Uh, with the rise of Jugmeet Singh at this point and his popularity numbers that you've talked about, what is the chance of the left splitting the vote here? Oh, uh, you know, a strong NDP is Aaron O'Toole's best friend. Uh, so he's not going to be throwing too many uh, too many punches over at, uh, at Jagmeet Singh because uh, he, he wants him to be as strong as possible. He would love for the NDP to steal some seats from the Liberals maybe in, 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 in southwestern Ontario, in Windsor, uh, you know, of course, the, uh, the Hamilton-Niagara area, uh, downtown Toronto. Um, so the, the, the math to a majority for the Liberals isn't simply to add seats. They, they're probably going to lose some to the left. Uh, and uh, Aaron O'Toole loves it because it means he can sort of come up, uh, come up. The, the, I was going to say the middle, you know, because he's not very far right at the moment. Come up the middle and uh, and, and and form a, a government. May not be a majority, but at least win enough seats uh, that uh, he can try to cobble together a cabinet.
We've often seen during election time, whether it's federally or provincially, uh, the liberals moving way far to the left and, and, and literally going up and stealing things out of the shopping cart of, uh, of the NDP. How is it different this time for the prime minister, the fact that he's battling both sides? Because obviously yeah. the conservatives under Andrew Scheer weren't quite a threat uh, last year, although he did lose a majority to him. Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, uh, I would say so far, an absolute disaster for the Liberals. You know, to go in with, a, we had a five-point lead heading into the campaign, uh, and to have, have squandered that lead in, in two weeks' time. Uh, the, 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 the most critical area, of course, for the Prime Minister is Ontario, where, where you know, there are roughly 38% of the, of the seats in, in Parliament, uh, particularly the 905 and, and, uh, and Hamilton-Niagara area, where there are a lot of uh, swing ridings. Uh, the Liberals were eight points ahead at the start of this campaign, and in one week they went from eight points ahead to four points behind. Uh, I mean that that is catastrophic, uh, and would uh, if, you know if nothing else changes. If that was the only change in this campaign, it would probably cost them their government. So uh, they need to turn things around. Uh, the Liberals are struggling to find a wedge issue. You know they've tried it with um, COVID passports. They've tried to find a wedge issue uh, with abortion, and 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 Aaron O'Toole seems to be doing an extremely good job at at, at deflecting and coming out and saying, no, no, this is what I believe. There's 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 we, we essentially believe the same thing. There may be different ways to go about doing it, but this is who I am, and and uh, he he knows what it's going to take to get elected. You were talking about wedge issues, and I think we've spoke about this in the past. Like the first out of the first uh, out of the blocks, the first couple of days, we're talking about abortion and, and mandatory vaccine and such. Which again, you know, uh, I think all are ending up at the same place. Uh, does does the prime minister desperately need a wedge issue here to 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 come forward? Because it doesn't seem that what he's saying is resonated or is resonating, or it's old news to a lot of people. Yeah. It, it, it appears like he's looking to pick a fight. He's looking for a wedge issue. Yeah, and, and I think he does need it um, for for the, the reason that he needs something to talk about that isn't Afghanistan, that isn't the pandemic, because, uh, you know, these are the questions that are coming his way at the start of every press conference. And what it does is it colors the way that he, uh, it, you know, that his message is perceived. Um, and uh, uh, anything else he says is kind of in the context of already having to address a whole bunch of bad news. So he needs an issue that, that the conservatives are on one side, he's on the other side, and, and the view of, of, of a majority of Canadians that the conservatives are offside on that issue. He hasn't found it yet. He desperately needs it. And until he finds it, uh, I think he may continue to, to languish. The debates are going to be really important. Uh, they're not for you know, another two weeks, but uh, I think that that could be the, the moment where, where he's able to turn things around if, if, if he can perform well. It's interesting, Sean, that others have mentioned that, uh, you know, even this far out, they're looking forward to the debates and what's going to happen. I can't remember that sort of anticipation in the past. Uh, you, you mentioned it. And last question, we'll let you go. Afghanistan. Is this uh, is this an election issue or is it one of those situations where there's only so much we can do? How will how will this resonate with voters? Yeah, I don't think that it's uh, necessarily an issue that people are going to be voting on, but it it is, uh, as I mentioned before, just one instance of 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 bad news. There's nothing good coming out of there right now, right? And uh, the government is looking a little impotent. In uh, you know, why why have would they why is the Canadian government stopped uh, airlifts when the UK still have more plans, for example, right? So there, there's it's a difficult file to manage. To be sure, would the Conservatives do be doing anything differently? I don't know. 
But there's one guy in charge. He's the prime minister, and he's gonna he's gonna wear the, the response. So if you're already frustrated with him on a bunch of other files, including calling an election during a pandemic, Afghanistan maybe one more reason why you're turning away. Sean Simpson with us, Vice President of Ipso. Sean, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Have a great weekend. My pleasure. Take care. Paging Dr. Dover, Dr. Ben Dover, report to Proctology. Paging Dr. Tam, Dr. Tam, can we have a federal news conference on COVID-19 during an election? Paging Dr. Tam. Have you noticed that? There has been no federal COVID-19 briefing during the federal election. Let's bring in Tim Powers, uh, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Good to talk to you, Scott. Very clever. I haven't heard a bend over joke in a very long time. Good, good time to bring I, it forward. I think I, I think, I think the last time I did it was my very first morning show in the 1980s. Well, and you still are employed, so that's good. That's good. <laughs> Maybe not anymore, Tim. All right, uh, uh, Dr. Tam and the federal COVID-19 uh, briefing uh, table and, and the news conferences that we were getting on a weekly basis because we remember the con- the conflicting information sometimes between NASI and Health Canada and the table and such. Uh, but now during the election, we're not seeing any of that, and we're having an election during a global pandemic. We understand that uh, government systems shut down. Is that the reason we're not seeing these briefings on a regular basis, uh, and should we be? Well, I, I guess. I mean, the conservatives are starting to ask questions around all of this. Um, generally, there doesn't usually have uh there doesn't that doesn't usually happen i should say that you have active government fate public briefings during uh during the campaign but i mean i guess you can look at afghanistan afghanistan scott we do have ministers coming out and telling us what is happening uh or not happening in terms of uh evacuation attempts I'm not sure why we can't have dr tam and the health minister doing the same for the pandemic there's no you know there's no reason that it couldn't happen other other than perhaps the uh the the government would prefer it not to happen right now because again they can't control what dr tam might say and what concerns she may express uh, about circumstances and perhaps they just don't want to take the political risk that could come with acknowledging the obvious that things are certainly not as good as they were anyway two months ago uh let's cut to the chase here uh an election that the prime minister called all the concern was during a global pandemic obviously if you're calling an election that no one wanted during a global pandemic and the health table comes up and says the COVID 19 numbers are increasing that does not jive with your plans so do we have a case of the prime minister's office silencing the science here you could make that argument, and nobody's made it as succinctly as you just did right now. How um, come? How come, Tim? How how come nobody has made that argument until well, the, until you now? Well, you know, it's a good question. I mean, the, 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 maybe the, the the liberals are hoping the conservatives will make that argument because then they can go back at them because the, the liberals that is and suggest, well, you know what, we're trying to deal with this and we're forcing and pushing the idea of mandatory vaccinations. You won't do that. So maybe it starts to happen um, soon. 
Uh, I don't know. Um, I'm sure there's a whole variety of calculations at play here. But all of the gamesmanship, the politics aside, Scott, I generally think still, even though they may have becoming have become a tad bit redundant, the public, regardless of whether they're partisan affiliated or not, found at some point utility in, in the doctors speaking to us directly about what uh, was transpiring as it related to COVID-19. Uh, so are we fatigued uh, by these news conferences? Is it time to cool everything off? Or with the arrival of a fourth wave, kids going back to school in fall, is this something that needs to be addressed? We need information. Uh yeah, look, I, I think we do need more information. I, we're seeing more here in Ontario, if you know, of, uh, of Dr. Moore. I think that's helpful. We're hearing, we're cycling up again and hearing more of uh, the uh, public health officials who become well known to us over the last number of, I guess, almost two years, uh, because school is coming back. And I think, you know, again, parents, I, I being one of them, uh, you as well, want to know what we need to be conscious of, aware of, what the risks are or what they're not as our kids go back to school. So there may be some pressure coming. Maybe there is a plan to start them again in September, but right now their absence is notable. Uh, Lots of chatter, especially in Ontario, about that elusive vaccination app. Um, Some thinking that that app will do more for you than what you already have on your phone. I support fully vaccinated. Uh, I'm fully vaccinated. I support it. And I and I encourage everyone to go out and get vaccinated. However, to me, this seems like another distraction or wedge issue that the province is looking for. And and I think Ontario is going to have to deal with. But at the end of the day today, the prime minister came out and said, we're going to supply money for the provinces to create an app. Which, you know, that just, you know, that's going to floor Ontario. But on the other hand, if you're investing money into a provincial app, why do you not invest in your own app that's federal, that's a part of your passport that you're going to have to do for international travel anyway? And instead of everybody complaining about these, all these regional passports within a province, we've got all these regional provincial passports within a country. So is it better for the, uh, for the prime minister to offer the provinces money for this mess? Or should they just do their own their own uh, vaccine passport as part of a travel document or a health card? And then uh, the provinces wouldn't be dealing with this mess. They wouldn't be fighting well, about it. Uh, yeah, well, the provinces, you're getting into a fine discussion of constitutional affairs, Scott, because as you know, health care services uh, underwritten in large measure by the federal government, but delivered by the provinces. So the provinces mm-hmm. would have to agree to accept a federal document. Uh, and maybe that's where they all go. And maybe that's what Trudeau is, is, is trying to push here that look, we're going to have one, as you said a moment ago, for travel. If you want to recognize it at a provincial level as also a valid document for whatever proof of, um, requirement is necessary in your province, then go for it. Um, so maybe maybe we do get there i don't know but then that would suggest god forbid you know a province gave up authority in its own field you heard premier lego yesterday responding to the quebec premier responding to some of the policies that have been brought forward in the election campaign around health care investments and some of them 
uh, from the Liberals and the Democrats have been very precise, or I won't say very precise, but have been clear in what the money would be earmarked for. And Legault has said, no, no, you give us the money, we decide where it goes. So, you know, this fits into that kind of debate of, all right, you work, somebody's going to create a tool, but ultimately uh, it has to be declared valid by those for whom it has importance. Uh, let's move on to, uh, polling yeah, across the board. So I know, <laughs> I know. It's just, and you know what, you know what bugs me about this, Tim, is everybody's saying basically different things to arrive at the same place. And, well, you know, and, yeah, uh, add back, and can I just add on this point? Yep. The governments are all kind of wanting corporations to get there before they do. So they can yep. say, oh, look, the community took leadership. Good. We didn't have to bring down our heavy hand. Uh, lots of polling out saying that the lead that the Liberals had going into this election, or certainly in the weeks running up to it, uh, has diminished. It's a virtual dead heat between uh, the Conservatives and the Liberals, a statistical dead heat. Uh, Jagmeet Singh coming out uh, again is, is one of the most uh, likable leaders. Your thoughts on all this polling we're seeing at this point in this campaign? Well, I mean, at this point in this campaign, it's a close campaign. Uh, a few things to factor in, I think, as, and again, you and I and your listeners, I suspect, and others pay a lot of attention to this. Big question for me uh, is, all right, are, are, when will the broader, more Canadians tune into this? Because I am sure, as you have, have had lots of conversations with people outside the political bubble who are like, oh, yeah, the election, not really paying attention, going to look in September. The Liberals, I think, are hoping that that's the case and that when people look in September, these polls will miraculously change. Point two, if that's your strategy as, a, as the Liberals, you've got taken on a lot of risk there. There certainly is for those who are tuning in, for those who are answering the polls, Justin Trudeau is not performing as well as his party would have hoped, as well as he would have hoped. And certainly what was unthinkable before, God forbid, Scott, that Aaron O'Toole could win some sort of government here is now an active conversation. They didn't ever want that conversation to become a reality. Now now it is. Um, the third thing I would say is we'll know the degree of liberal angst sooner, I suspect, rather than later. And others have probably said it, but I, I will echo it as a non-original thought. But if the liberals start sooner going after the NDP and scaring the hell out of people and saying, if you want to stop the conservatives, you're going to need to move your NDP vote over to us to make that happen. That is an acknowledgement that the liberals are really worried about the trajectory of this election. You said uh, unless the liberals start scaring people, uh, it, it appears that everything that uh, the prime minister has thrown at the opposition, they've been able to bat back at him. Uh, it appears he's okay. desperately looking for that wedge issue. Uh, to create a fight moving forward. How do you do that when, again, someone like a Jugmeet Singh is polling as high as he is, and, and you're getting hit really from both sides? Yeah, you are getting hit from both sides, and Mr. O'Toole is, is doing some interesting fishing as well, too. He truly is demonstrating more of the progressive side of conservatives than previous conservative leaders have uh, since perhaps Brian Mulroney, and that at least seems to be having some resonance. So how do you address that? I mean, maybe the liberals 
call out of the legitimacy of that as it relates to Mr. O'Toole. As it relates to Mr. Singh, it probably will be, you know, he can't win. He can't win. And if you, uh, if you're, you want real policy, you want real change, and you want some of the things Mr. Singh is talking about, then you vote for us. Problem is, the both opposition parties are uh, holding the Liberals' feet to the fire and saying, okay, well, on housing, for example, big issue. You had six mm. years to do something, but, it, you know, not much has been done. How's all of that going to change? And the Liberals haven't found, as you alluded to, their mojo yet to have people believe that, hey, it'll be different over the over the next few years. So it's, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't see Liberals panicking because there's still 23 days to go in this campaign, uh, which is a long time, but they ought to be concerned that they're not connecting. And I don't know if they're as fully concerned as they should be, unless they have some master strategy, Scott, uh, that we haven't seen yet. I'm not saying that Justin Trudeau uh, can't win. He still can win. He still wins if you look at all the polls today because the liberal vote is more efficient. But it's gonna getting harder and harder to believe that he will get a majority today as we sit here 23-odd days out. It'll be interesting to see if this campaign changes drastically after uh, after Labor Day. Um, it, it certainly appears, and people noticed, and, and we're asserting even reporters are talking about this uh, in the news scrums, that uh, O'Toole is, uh, is definitely moving to the center. What does that do for the swing vote? Uh, again, how does the opposition view that? Um, well, they're going to try challenge his credibility on all of that, right? I mean, I, I having no, known Aaron O'Toole for a while, I think that it is more his natural home, but broader Canadian public doesn't know that. They saw him win a conservative leadership race where he um, tacked more forcefully to the right. So the opposition, I suspect, will haul out O'Toole statements from the past, from his campaign, and say, okay, which of these Aaron O'Toole statements do you believe? The other thing that's really fascinating uh, so far, Scott, that came out in the Nick Nanos data today is the the gender war uh, or gaps that are there. So conservatives doing really well with women, or men, sorry, not women, they're doing poorly with women, doing very well with men. I think they have a 15-point lead over the liberals when it, when it comes to male voters. Uh, on the other side, Justin Trudeau still doing very well with all cohorts of female voters. Um, you know, how does that play itself out in the campaign? Does it continue to play itself out? Do we see it in the language both leaders start to use or what they double down on? Watch for all of that to evolve, too. Is this, again, a slippery slope? Uh, I, I, I've got the gender issue written down to chat with you about. If you look at the block, they're pretty much even Stephen split between male and female. Why would you want to split your uh, party along gender lines? To me, that is just simply divisive politics uh, of the most primitive kind, being with gender. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, is that a wise issue? Uh, you know, again, we know the prime minister is the feminist prime minister, uh, but is it not putting all of your eggs in one basket? It's not that you necessarily would want to do it. Perhaps you don't have a choice because of where your vote is weighted, and you uh -huh. want to look at how much more you can take out of the the pool that is weighting its way for you. So um, ideally, uh, both parties would like to be scoring uh, more effectively and higher 
with the groups that they're not scoring so well. When Mr. Trudeau has won, uh, won his majority, uh, and his minority, he was doing much better with male voters than he is now. It's not a new problem for Mr. Trudeau, but it's one that's, <clears throat> excuse me, more exacerbated. Equally true for Mr. O'Toole. Um, when, when the, when female voters are anxious about the conservatives, they don't tend, conservatives don't tend to do as well. So it's a problem for both of them that they have to wait accordingly to determine what they need to do to get a win. Uh, it seems over time since the prime minister has been in office, it, it's like a kumbaya moment. It's, you know, let's solve the, the world issues and such. But over time, it appears that, it, you know, and, and if I'm wrong here, you tell me, this is strictly my opinion, that this party has become more divisive. They've done more to divide than they have unite. It's us against them. If you don't believe me, uh, you're on the wrong side of history. Uh, you know, my way of the highway, there's no collaboration. Uh, and again, the gender split for me really pointed this out. It, it's, they're looking, they're looking to take sides. And in the end, that creates division. There's a great column written today by Andrew McDougall, who used to be Stephen Harper's communications director, and he talks effectively about what you're talking about, but uses a different way of describing. He talks about tone, how you know when Trudeau was uh, preached his message in 2015, he was happy, he was inclusive, he was about bringing everybody along, and now his tone has become sticky and, and, and controversial and a bit more divisive. And I think that's an excellent analysis of, of what's happened. It also looks like, and a colleague of mine said this to me, and the more I think about it, I think he, he was right. Right now, it doesn't look like Justin Trudeau wants to win. Uh, look, I still think you know, there's lots of proof to suggest Justin Trudeau's an excellent campaigner, and when he focuses on an objective in a campaign, he can do very well. Right now, uh, and, and maybe he's tired and fatigued from COVID and six years and is feeling the scars of, of the divides that are there, but right now, he just doesn't look like he wants to win. And we all know uh, if you don't look like you want something, it's a hell of a lot harder to get it. I mean, that, again, may change over time, but right now the liberals just do seem off. Doesn't mean they can't fix it. Doesn't mean they won't fix it. But right now they're off, and Aaron O'Toole and Jagmeet Singh are on and, and doing better than people perhaps expected at this point. Is it that, or is it that the Prime Minister isn't as appealing when he's challenged or behind the eight ball, when it's not sunny ways, when he's not playing to the crowd? Many talked about how with this, with a COVID campaign, uh, there's no rallies, there's no big, uh, there's no big brouhaha. There was a hilarious picture online the other day of Trudeau getting off his plane, waving at people, and there's nobody there but the ground crew. It's like, what the heck is that? Um, is it that is it what you're saying, or is that he has trouble when he is challenged and it's not going in his direction? Uh, yeah, I think that there's some of that too. But even when you're sometimes when you're challenged in troubles, you're, you know, that motivates you. Um, yeah. So I, I think he's yes, he's struggling a little bit, and there's some new writing out that suggests you know what O'Toole has been doing with the, the virtual town halls is working. And maybe the liberals switch gears and try and do that. But for both O'Toole and Singh or, uh, and, and adding Mr. Trudeau, not having crowds is tough. They all feed off of crowds. Yeah. But Trudeau, I think particularly that's his, that's his hit, right? That, that's the drug he likes. And, uh, maybe they, it's like find... a giant, it's like a giant we rally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're, you're, you're a nasty. <laughs> 
one today, but I'm sorry. Our own. Bring bring out the brothers, Kielberger. I mean, if if they come out, then I think the liberals are really in trouble. But uh, long way to go yet. Keep saying that. Long way to go yet. All right. Tim Powers with us, chairman of Sigma Strategies, managing director of Abacus Data. Tim, always fun to have you on. Thanks so much for the time. Be well and have a great weekend. You too, buddy. Bye. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.